solo episode on the Neuro Network this week. So it is the season of conferences for scientific meetings. So uh, instead of trying to schedule people around that cluster, we're just going to do a solo episode. And I realized that we didn't really ever have an episode where I kind of talked about my research itself. So I figured, you know, what the hell, it's probably a good time to, to do that. So the majority of my research itself is actually focused on the neural control of breathing. So understanding how your brain and your brainstem and all these different things control how you breathe. So I've, I've talked about it in the past uh, on a previous episode about, you know, the three major components of the respiratory control network. So you have a controller, which is you know, your brain and your brainstem. And these are the things that create the signals to go down the phrenic nerve, down to the diaphragm and, and all the other different muscles of respiration, which we call those effectors, uh, in order to change how much we breathe at any given time. And then intermixed within there, you have a bunch of sensors. So you have some central sensors that primarily sense CO2 and hydrogen, and you have some peripheral sensors, the carotid bodies and aortic bodies and stuff like that, that sense oxygen. And then you have some mechanical receptors, which are in your lungs and your airway, and you have some stretch receptors. Um, and these are things that sort of fine tune the breathing system in order to uh, bring breathing into a rate that matches what's necessary for metabolism at, at any given time. So the majority of the work that I did in graduate school was actually focusing on um, chronic stimulation of the sensors. So we were looking at how hypercapnia or elevated levels of CO2 uh, being chronically exposed to elevated levels of CO2 actually change your brain because, you know, in some diseases like COPD or um, I guess extreme cases of asthma, but most of the time not in asthma, uh, you can get a hypercapnia that can occur. So basically the person isn't breathing enough to actually remove all the CO2 from their body. So that CO2 starts to accumulate over time. And it chronically signals to those sensors, the, the chemoreceptors within the brainstem, that you need to breathe more. But of course, you know, with any physiological type of system, there's always sort of the, the law of energy balance where you're trying to reduce the, or energy conservation rather, that you're trying to reduce the amount of energy for a given process at any time. And, and so it kind of puts into, um, I guess, it, it puts a... a um, a decision that the, the brain has to make, right? It either has to continue to breathe more than it normally is in order to get rid of the CO2 because you're obviously trying to overcome an obstruction that's that's occurring from the disease or it has to stop breathing so much in order to conserve energy. But the, the problem with that is that if you're not breathing as much, in this case, especially when they have perturbed lungs, um, it starts to build up CO2 and hydrogen and uh that's also not so good because now you're putting the body in a chronic state of, of acidosis or elevated levels of uh, acid within the blood from the, the CO2. So trying to understand, you know, we were trying to understand, we use goats um, in, in environmental chambers to see what actually happens within the brain when it's proposed with that stress chronically over the course of 30 days. And, and we can save the rest of that research for for another episode. But what I wanted to really talk about, though, was uh, how much or, or what's going on with the research that I'm doing right now. So again, it's it's all focused on that premise or that, that, that framework of the neural control of breathing and understanding how it reacts to different stimuli. And the primary stimuli that I'm looking at right now is opioids. And so trying to understand how opioids affect the respiratory network and how we can create different um, therapeutic approaches to mitigate some of the effects of 
opioids. And so the major reason that people die from opioid overdose is is called opioid-induced respiratory depression. And so uh, opioids, of course, are a powerful analgesic that's used in the clinic. It's also very much abused um, um, recreationally. Um, but regardless, um, these are things such as like fentanyl, morphine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, things like this. Um, and, and they're primarily used to stimulate the opioid receptors in order to provide pain relief. But they also can become very addictive and hallucinogenic and things like this. And so uh, this is why they tend to be abused on the streets. But one of the, the scary things about the opioids is that the opiate receptor, the primary site of the, the binding of the opioid itself is to the uh, mu opioid receptor. There's also other uh, delta and kappa opioid receptors as well that have effect, uh, effects, but the main effects of the opioids are primarily touted to be from binding to that mu opioid receptor. And what's scary is that the areas within the brainstem that control our breathing are the rhythmogenic core of rhythm generation or that, that area within the brain that tells us when we should take a breath, uh, also known as the prebotzinger complex, is chocked full of opioid receptors. There's a lot, like half of the cells within that area actually express the opioid receptor. And the reason that's scary is because when the opioids are on board, when someone is taking opioids for pain relief, when they're taking opioids recreationally, the opioids don't discriminate where in the brain that they're binding. They just bind to anywhere that has an opioid receptor. And so when there's a large amount of opioid receptors um, that are expressed within the respiratory networks, the opioid goes on there, it binds to the opioid receptor, and it reduces the amount of neural function. And so that's a bad thing when you want to breathe because now these opioids, despite the fact that they're providing pain relief, are now shutting down the areas that are necessary for breathing. So while I don't mean to, you know, I, I, I never want to alienate opioids by any means because opioids work. I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that uh, when it comes to pain relief, opioids are, are really good. They provide a huge amount of pain relief. I mean, like what other drugs do you know that, that you can wake a patient up from surgery after they've just had their knee replaced or something like that, and they feel no pain, right? There's definitely a benefit, and I don't think that we should just completely get rid of opioids altogether. We just need to understand how the opioids work a little bit better, so that way we can harness the power of their analgesics without having to worry about the respiratory centers shutting down. And there's, you know, there's different research groups that are trying to focus on that. Obviously, our research group is, is one of those in particular that's trying to understand how, you know, we can we can change this interplay between the the network connections or the the makeup of the neural network that controls our breathing uh, and the opioids themselves. And so that's a lot of what the the research that I'm doing right now and our group is 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 focusing on. So, like I said, the um, the neural control of breathing, the, the primary site of rhythm generation uh, or, or the controller for breathing uh, is an area within the brainstem called the prebotzinger complex, which is actually, um, you know, this, this sort of kernel of rhythm generating neurons or this group of cells that produce these rhythmic oscillations that go down to innervate your diaphragm in order to make you breathe. Um, it, although, you know, a lot of research nowadays is sort of uh, I testing the idea that perhaps rather than sort of a core of rhythm generation, there's this area within the brainstem that expands and contracts dynamically for, you know, the amount of cells that are actually involved within the process is, is somewhat dynamic. So how many cells are actually involved within this core set of rhythm generating units is somewhat, um, not a fixed property, but somewhat, somewhat flexible. But of course that's a uh, research that's ongoing right now and is, up for highly uh, heated debates. 
as is is very evident by um, some conferences and stuff like that. But so the actual uh, emergence of rhythmic oscillatory neural signals from that pre-Botzinger complex or from that pre-Botzinger complex region um, that are accounted for to be responsible for our breathing, it's, it's considered an emergent property. So like no single component, like if we just plop one of the, or if we just pluck out one of the components of that network, whatever cell it might be, no, no single component can actually account for the behavior of the network as a whole. And so we consider it to be an emergent property or the ability to create that rhythm generation from the network is an emergent property. So we, you know, uh, some of the reasons that we know that this area is, is important for the control of breathing is that in, in some of the previous studies, uh, that were done in many different animals being that of goats and mice and rats and cats and dogs and stuff like that. Uh, when you perturbed or you disrupted the function of this, this brainstem region, in the whole intact animal, it led to terminal apneas. And so we determined that, yeah, uh, this region is actually necessary for the generation of rhythm. But if we take an actual dive into the pre-Botzinger complex itself, we understand that this region or this, this rhythm generating region within the brainstem is actually, it's not only sufficient for the generation of, of breathing, but it's also necessary for the generation of breathing. Um, and so we, we found, you know, like some of the older groups, uh, had found that there's a necessity for this region in order to control the breathing again, by, by perturbing the area and, uh, the breathing goes away, but it's also sufficient to generate its own respiratory rhythm. So if you take a brainstem out and you take a slice from the brainstem and it includes that region of the brain, it'll continue to create these rhythmic whoosh, 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 you know, these, these breaths as if the rest of the body was there but there is no body. So you still, you just have a brainstem that's telling the body to breathe, but there's, there's no body anymore, but it doesn't necessarily know that per se. So that's how you can say that this area of the brain is actually sufficient for the generation of a respiratory rhythm. Now, if you, if you break it down even one step further and you look at the population of cells that make up this, this rhythm generating area within the brainstem, the cells are, are hypothesized, and when you go in and you actually record from the cells, they take on th primarily three different phenotypic expressions. And just, so just that, what that means is the, the behavior of the activity of those cells. And so neurons themselves are electrical cells, and so they have this complex interplay between chemical signals and electrical activity and electrical signals and electrical activity and chemical messengers and, and whatnot. So basically, the cells produce electrical gradients, right? So if we take a, a neuron or we take a single cell within the brain, we can measure a lot of its activity by changes in the electrical potentials that are coming from the cell or produced from the cell. Um, and so there's some means like chemical means that a chemical can bind to the cell. And then that can change the composition of ions within the cell to, to change the electrical gradient because ions are, are positively charged molecules that can change the um, the charge of the cell itself. And so that's what we tend to measure a lot. Um, but but neurons tend to have a um, somewhat of a unique behavior where they fire uh, what we call action potentials, or they fire these little spikes. And so if you're recording actually the activity of the cell, or if you put little headphones on the cell and you listen to its activity, um, or rather if you, I guess, listen, if you put headphones on your head and plug that plug into the neuron, and you can listen to what it's doing. Uh, it tends to do a lot of these little pops. So it's almost like speaking in Morse code, right? It's like pop, 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 pop. Um, 
and and the cells within the area that control your breathing tend to take on three different like firing patterns and so firing patterns just meaning that how are those pops actually aligning um, and so some of the cells are just completely silent they're just quiescent they're sitting there they're waiting for a stimulus to come in if a stimulus does hit that cell then it turns on and goes pop uh, but otherwise they're just sort of chilling out there's other cells that are they're tonically spiking and so they're always just pop 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 um, but there's no real pattern to them at all and then there's bursting cells which fire these very short bursts of very quick action potentials and so they're like you know they have these little zingers uh, that we call them when you're when you're recording. But basically, the the hypothesis from some of the computational analysis, which seems to, to play out, as, as I'll get into, um, is that the cell's uh, behavior, whether they're silent, tonic, or bursting, is very much dependent on a mixture between the biophysical properties of the cell itself. In other words, what type of uh, ion channels are expressed on that cell. And so some cells have what we call like bursting currents or burst promoting currents. And so the more of those that they have, the higher the likelihood that that cell is actually going to be firing those zingers or that burst. Um, and then there's also some, some tonic currents or there's also a tonic drive from other areas in the brain going into there or a tonic level of excitation that determines you know, uh, how much excitation is going into that cell at any given time. And it's a balance between those intrinsic biophysical properties and the tonic excitation that's coming into that cell at any given time that dictates the behavior of that cell, whether it's silent, it's tonically spiking, or it's bursting. And so that's sort of uh, the continuum of behaviors and the flexibility or the dynamicity that every cell has um, within the network. And it's not to say that every cell can take on every behavior. Uh, because it can't always change those intrinsic biophysical properties that make up the cell itself. Uh, those are more or less not rigidly fixed, but they're they're more or less um, set for a given time. Uh, they tend to change slower, whereas the amount of excitability or that, that tonic activity coming into the cells is very dynamic, you know, on the millisecond basis. So it can change very, 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 very quickly. So, so basically the idea is that these cells um, with low levels of excitation are pretty much silent. And then if you hit that sweet spot where there's just enough excitation in it to really turn that cell on, it'll start to burst and it'll send out those zingers. And then if there's too much excitation, it just starts to become tonically spiking and there's no real uh, pattern anymore. So that's sort of the intrinsic and some of the extrinsic factors that contribute to the, the neuronal firing patterns within those cells at any given time within the network. So uh, on top of that, though, the, the prebotzinger complex or the, the rhythm generating units within the, the brainstem that control your breathing also are receiving input from many different regions of the brain. So the prebotzinger complex or the, the rhythm generating centers within the brainstem needs to be flexible um, because it's always receiving neuromodulators or neuromodulatory input, as we'll say. So like from the hypothalamus, uh, it could be receiving input from nucleus accumbens, nucleus ambiguous, the nucleus of the solitary tract, the, the other areas within the brainstem, the periaqueductal gray, or uh, you know, even some regions of the, the prefrontal cortex have some sort of roundabout rate in order to get there. So all the different areas of the brain go in to influence our breathing. And so they do that primarily through changing the neuromodulatory milieu or, or the amount of neuromodulators within the brain stem uh, at any given time. And so basically, you know, if you have a heightened state of arousal, 
there might be excessive amounts of serotonin or norepinephrine that might be released. Um, and so there might be excessive amounts of that uh, within this area of the brain at that certain time, which is going to influence how fast or slow we're breathing. And so, uh, you know, this is how a lot of those different emotional regulatory elements of breathing go in to affect how our breathing is going on. And so if like if we're very nervous, for example, we might get excessive uh, activation of some of those adrenergic cell groups within the um, the rostral portions of the brainstem that are going to release more adrenaline or noradrenaline into uh, the area of the brain that's controlling our breathing in order to speed it up. And so we start to, you know, we start to, to relatively hyperventilate because of a behavioral consequence or because of a behavioral uh, influence on our respiratory centers. And so it's, it's, it's this, this mixture between uh, fine-tuning the respiratory network um, enough so that way it can keep up with metabolic demands. Um, but it's, you know, some of the research is coming out lately that's showing that perhaps, you know, these neuromodulatory inputs from other regions of the brain going into uh, the brainstem that can change our breathing might actually be an important part for synchronizing some of the the overall brain activities in order to change our mood. And so the idea would be, you know, like, for example, if if we are having the excessive amounts of adrenergic signaling coming from those rostral portions of the brainstem, which is going to increase the amount that we're breathing, that breathing might be able to entrain some of those higher order cognition centers within the cortex um, in order to sort of bring everything back into control and calm us back down. It's not fully fleshed out, so some of that is just sort of hypothesized work um, or hypothesized ideas based on rationale of the brainstem and an interplay between the cortex. But regardless, that's sort of more or less the case or the state of the, the research in that as of right now. So the overall level of the excitability of the network, how excitable is the respiratory network depends on a balance between the intrinsic properties of the cells that make it up and those synaptic inputs coming from all of the different regions of the brain. And so what we wanted to do then is, is understand, well, I guess back it up. When I came into the current lab, my project was to figure out, you know, what is a cure for opioid-induced respiratory depression? And we had a list of drugs, and we're just going to take the brain stems out. We're going to expose them to the opioids, put on the drugs, and see what re uh, reversed it. Easy enough, right? Never so easy. So, as with everything in science, like, if you, if you have this easy project or you think this project is going to be super simple, then you take the, you know, like, for example, with the opioids, you're just going to take the brains out. You're going to put it in a dish. You're going to expose it to the opioids, and you're going to... Six similar drugs on there and see how it responds. Like, boom, easy. Uh, you know, of course, what happened was you take all the brain stems out, you put them in a dish, you keep them alive, you record their respiratory activity. And the only reason that we take the brain stems out for this is basically you just want to like isolate that, that center of the brain stem. You don't want to have the influencing factors of all the different, all the other different regions of the brain uh, from behavioral inputs. Cause we're trying to find, you know, an underlying mechanism that can be used to reverse the opioids. And so you don't want all the confounding factors of, you know, how well did that mouse sleep or how, how excitable is that mouse? How aroused is that mouse? You don't want anything like that, uh, sort of being a confounding factor. Of course, you know, once you find a cure per se 
within the the isolated brainstem slice prep, then you can, you know, then you then you start to translate it into a clinical type of model. So you go into a whole animal and you see how it works. And then, you know, you, you do that in rodents and then you can go up into like goats or something. And then you can go into, you know, primates and then you can go into humans. And that's how you sort of do walk this line of translational, uh, translational neurophysiology, if you will, towards a, towards a clinical cure. Great. So we took the brainstems out put them in a dish, gave them the opioids, and like only half of the things actually responded, which was sucked, right? <laughs> because it's like, if we're going to try to figure out how to actually create a cure for the opioid-induced respiratory depression or that, that suppression of neural activity of the regions of the brainstem that control our breathing, it's kind of hard when only half of the brain stems respond in the first place. Like some of them just didn't even care. We can go into like massive doses of opioids, didn't care. And on top of that, these are all littermate mice. Like these are mice that, you know, mom had a litter of, of nine mice and we used all nine. They are genetically identical because that mom was inbred. So basically like you take a brother and you take a sister from the same family, you inbreed them. And so there are multiple generations of inbreeding. And the reason that we do that inbreeding, uh, which is, is totally natural for mice, is, is that there's very, very, very little, if any, genetic variation. So they're, for all encompassing, for all intents and purposes, they're relative clones, right? They're not exact clones, but for the most, because there's random mutations that occur, of course, during the, the case of, of, um, of development, but, but, essentially they have a very, very similar, if not the same genetic makeup. And so it was controlled for that. And, and, and so even despite the fact that these mice have the same genetic makeup, they have wildly different responses to the opioids. And not only that, but their brain stems. I mean, it's not even like a behavioral input. It's literally their brain stems that were taken out and sliced. So it's not like they were, you know, is this mouse sad? Is this mouse angry? Is this mouse happy? Is this mouse tired? Is this mouse, you know, uh, scared or something like that? Like all of that is removed. It's literally just the brainstem. So of course, then, you know, when you're trying to find the, a cure for it, you're, you're stuck with this. I don't want to say you're stuck with the data set, but you're more or less stuck with this set of data that you have this wild variation in the response to opiates. And so how do you how do you actually like find a cure for data that are non like they don't have the predicted response to begin with and so we took a step back and and just said like hey uh rather than asking the question of what drug can we follow up the opioid with to see what reverses the opioid induced respiratory depression what makes one brain stem more sensitive to the opioids compared to another brainstem that had almost no response to the opioids. And and can we take a brainstem that had a you know very large response to the opioids, or in other words, it was very sensitive to shutting off from the opioids, and can we transition that neural network to a state that resembles that of the brainstems that uh, had very little response to the opioids? In other words, can we take a brainstem and make it non-sensitive to the opioids anymore. Because if we can do that, then perhaps we can figure out how to rewire some of these neural networks in acute cases in order to prevent the respiratory networks in the brainstem to shut off while leaving the response of the rest of the brain intact. Of course, that's sort of the pie-in-the-sky goal. 
So, so one of the the unique things though is that when you're studying brainstem slices in isolation, it's obviously um, you know you've taken the brainstem out of the brain, and so it's not exactly a physiological model system anymore. I mean, it is a physiological model system because you've taken that brainstem from a living, breathing mouse, but 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 it's not in the same conditions as it would be normally within the brain. And so you try to replicate some of those conditions. And so you put it in a circulating bath of cerebrospinal fluid, um, or this is, you know, brain Gatorade, basically, as we call it, that just contains all the necessary factors in order to keep the brain alive outside of the body. But one of the things that you have to do is you have to account for the fact that you've now severed the connection between the higher, you know, cortex or the, the main brain area within your dome um, from the brainstem. And, and one of the things that happens is you're losing a huge amount of excitatory input. In other words, the, the brain or the cortex, the, you know, the wrinkly portion of the brain that you normally see when you just think of a picture of a brain, that area is always sending down a large amount of excitatory input to sort of modulate the, the regions of the brainstem that are, you know, sort of, influencing more of those things that just sort of keep you alive day to day, your breathing, your blood pressure, all that kind of stuff. And so when you do that, when you sever that connection, you need to supplement the brainstem with like something that can uh, replace that excitation that would normally be coming from the cortex. And the way that you do that is you can increase the amount of potassium actually within the brain Gatorade or that cerebral spinal fluid that the brainstem is bathing in. And so, so normally, uh, the amount of potassium in the cell, like inside of each neuron is very high and the amount of potassium on in in the outside of the cell is low. And so there's a a potassium gradient as you call it. Um, and so every time that a potassium channel, so potassium is a positively charged ion. So, so basically every, any time that a potassium channel opens, potassium usually tends to flood from inside of the cell into outside of the cell. And since potassium is a positively charged ion, when the potassium flows from inside to the outside of the cell, uh, it carries with it that positive charge. And so the cell itself actually becomes more negatively charged. And so it's a way of reducing the excitability of the cell. But if you want to increase the excitability of the cell in order to replace some of that excitation that's been just lopped off when we got rid of the cortex, uh, you need to increase the amount of potassium in the extracellular space or so the potassium outside of the cell. And, and when you replace the potassium outside of the cell, it worsens that gradient for potassium to flow out of the cell. So normally potassium, again, is inside of the cell at a higher concentration. And so when you raise the potassium on the outside of the cell, there's more of a resistance for that potassium. So it essentially pushes more of the potassium back into the cell so it can't flood out. And so it makes the neurons more depolarized or it increases the amount of electricity uh, inside of the neurons. And so it makes the neurons more excited. And so it's an easy way to do that. So the normal, the normal, um, amount of potassium within the cerebral spinal fluid that's bathing your brain is about three millimolar. And, uh, in the case of the rhythmic brainstem slices that are essentially emulating your breathing outside of the body, um, we usually go to about eight or, or nine millimolar potassium. So it is quite a, a, an excessive amount of potassium that you actually have to put, you know, you know, at three times the physiological concentration, which for most cases would put you into, you know, a grand mal seizure. But, uh, it, since the, the rest of the brain isn't there, it just sort of supplements what's missing and it brings that brainstem back into the state that it would be had the rest of the brain been intact. So, 
once you've raised the potassium up to eight millimolar, then the brainstem, you know, is basically doing what it was normally doing uh, with the rest of the brain intact. What we were finding is actually that when you were increasing the amount of potassium in the extracellular bathroom, in other words, you're increasing the excitability of that network or increasing the excitability of the neural network that controls your breathing, the amount of excitation necessary in order to get it to behave like it normally does within the whole intact brain-body system was not the same across all slices. So like in some cases, when you took that brainstem out and it was at 3 millimolar potassium, it behaved just like it did within the body. And so it didn't need any external excitation in order to get it to, you know, start the engine. Whereas in other cases, it needed all the way up into the eight millimolar to like just barely start to come online. And so what we're finding is that like the individual state of excitability across brain stems, across subjects, and across the same subject over time is different, right? And so the excitability state of the network is not a fixed property. And not only that, but, you know, normally we think about the excitatory state of the brainstem being very much modulated by the other areas of the brain. But what this was just saying is that intrinsically, even irrespective of those, those outside inputs, every brainstem itself is slightly different. So there's not necessarily like just this blank slate that, that is, uh, um, influenced differently, you know, based on each individual and their, in their emotional state, but basically the actual, the actual excitability state of the brainstem without any other inputs is, is very different across subjects. And so this is, this is like super important because the, the, it kind of brings into question, like, you know, normally the protocol states that you go up to eight millimolar potassium in order to supplement the excitability to bring it into a state of sort of physiological norm. Uh, but not all of them needed it. And so what do you do? Like, you know, what is the actual control? Is the control when you've brought the brainstem into a state that looks relatively similar to what it does outside of, you know, when it's actually within the body? Or do you just say to hell with the function and the control is to make sure that they're all bathing in the same solution? And that's that's still something that's, you know, sort of debated. So regardless of that, though, that was, was one of the major sort of so, sort of findings i guess it's not necessarily a finding it's sort of been known within the field but it's just uh one of the major things that was pointed out i guess um within some of the studies that i was doing earlier uh within the lab and and so basically that was sort of the baseline state to say that hey look there's there's a range of excitability states of the brainstem now our question was is how does the brainstem, or how does how does your respiratory network respond to opioids based on the different levels of excitation coming within the network, right? And so, so, so basically, if some slices are on a very low level of excitability, right? So you take these brainstems out, and and these are the ones that need a huge amount of boost in order to start to come online. You know, how do these brain stems respond to the opioids versus the ones that you take out and they're already ready to go? They don't need any sort of external input in order to rev the engine up enough in order to start going because we would predict that they would have very different opioid responses. And, and so basically like what we, what we needed to do was to figure out a way in order to 
quantifier in order to come up with some sort of metric in order to understand whether or not the brainstems were at a, a high state of excitability or were they at a low state of excitability. Like now we have to figure out you know, a way to to say what state of excitability that they're in in order to you know, ha- have a normal point before we give the opioid. And so what we were finding, though, was was that as if you take every slice, you know, you take it out and it's in a state of low extrinsic excitation, right? There's not a lot of f- fire going around in there. It's just pretty low exci- exci- excitability state. And you start to increase that excitation. So you start to increase the potassium within the bath that it's bathing in. When you do that, it forms a reproducible behavior of neural network output. And so the the, the prebotinger complex, like I said, normally forms these rhythmic bursts, uh, these whoosh, whoosh, basically what it sounds like, um, that go down to send that neural signal to innervate the, the diaphragm in order to make you breathe or innervates the phrenic, which then innervates the diaphragm and makes you breathe. But, but basically... Um, when you started to increase the amount of excitation, so you bring it from three to eight millimolar potassium, there was a similar pattern that was formed between all the slices. Some of the the brainstem slices, uh, you know, they needed a lot of uh, potassium in order to actually start bursting um, or to send those signals down to the the phrenic nerve um, to tell you to take a breath. But in all, in in all cases, when that brainstem was at a low state of excitability, regardless of how much potassium was there. Uh, it had this very like unstable rhythm that was just sort of barely emerging. So it's just like these kind of weak bursts that were just like, you know, it's just like barely trying to do its neural thing. And then as you increase the potassium or increase the excitability within the network, it started to form this beautiful stable max or this, this point of maximum stability where you had these big, robust, these big, robust bursts, uh, that were, were very good at sending that signal to take a breath. And then as you started to increase it, uh, the excitability beyond that point of maximum stability, the, the activity from that neural network become very, started to become very erratic and desynchronized. So it's just like bang, 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 bang. I mean, there's like, there's not much synchrony amongst the neurons anymore. And so it starts to become chaotic and desynchronized again. Uh, and so it starts to destabilize. And so you can start to see this, this sort of, um, bell shaped curve that's starting to emerge. If you, you know, you take the X axis and you make that the, the stability of the network, and then you take or excuse me, take the x-axis and you make it the excitability within the network and you take the y-axis and you make it the stability of the network. You can basically say that at low levels of excitation, the network is sort of um, unstable because it's at a low state of excitability. And then as you start to increase the excitability within the network, it starts to stabilize to a maximum point of stability at that sweet spot. And then once it starts to become overexcited relative to that sweet spot, and it starts to destabilize once again. And so um, you, you get this curve of stability within this neural network within the brainstem. But the important part was that the amount of excitation necessary in order to do in order to find that maximum point of stability was different across all networks. So some networks need a lot and some networks don't need a lot. Right. It just depends on that state of of, of the network. And so. That's what basically the bell curve of stability or the stability curve of rhythm generation that we, that we, um, I guess, put out and, and published. So, so really the question then became, okay, every, every brainstem 
exhibits this reproducible curve of the stability of rhythmic output based on the excitation of this neural network within the brainstem. How does a brainstem that's overexcited relative to its maximum point of stability, so it's on the right side of that bell curve, respond to an opioid versus a network that's at the top of that bell curve versus a network that's at the, the left side of that bell curve? How do each of those different network states respond to the opioid? So that's what we did. We took brainstem slices that at, so we, we put them all at eight millimolar potassium so that we can hold the solution constant. We tracked where along that stability curve all of the slices were. Again, some of them were on the left side of the curve. Some of them were on the right side of the curve. Some were right at the top of the curve. I looked at how it responded to the opioid. And what we were finding is that actually the, the slices that were on the left side of the stability curve, so basically these slices are, you know, they have a very low intrinsic level of excitation and they need a, a lot of excitation in order to actually start to induce that rhythm. When you give an opioid, it took almost no opioid. I mean, it took very, very, very low doses of the opioid to actually just shut the network off. And so um, these were sort of our high responders or our, our very sensitive slices to the opioids. Uh, when you took slices actually that were on the right side of the stability curve, so basically they were slices that by themselves or these brainstems by themselves had very, very high levels of excitability. They were already bursting. They didn't need a whole lot of input in order to create that respiratory rhythm. When you brought them up to, you know, the eight millimolar potassium, they were way overexcited. They were just like this crazy erratic bursting pattern. You know, they weren't, they've already gone past their, their happy point. Now they're sort of, you know, in this mild grade seizure or whatever. When you gave them the opioid, the opioid actually restabilized the network. So opioid in this case was actually good because it lowered that excitation that was in the network and it started to restabilize the bursting and it actually made it, uh, the bursting from or the neural activity from this, this region stronger. And so this was sort of in line with, you know, some of the extreme clinical cases basically where um, if someone's having like an anxiety attack or a panic attack, for example, opioids can actually be used to restabilize um, some of the, the respiratory networks from, from hyperventilation or from erratic breathing type of, of patterns. But again, that's, it's a, that's sort of a rare case and it's not always necessary. But, but basically what it's saying though, like what is the implication of this? It was basically saying that the brainstem can assume different states, the isolated brainstem can assume different states all on its own, regardless of all the interplay of the, the cortical inputs. And let's say that, you know, the, the low excitability state or you're sleeping or something like that. If you're, if you're taking a fentanyl or a morphine or a hydrocodone, oxycodone, heroin, anything, anything that's an opioid, the likelihood of your breathing centers shutting off is extremely high because the, the network itself is already in a low state of excitability. Versus if you're running from a bear, for example, or if you're middle of running a marathon or you're, you're in a haunted house or you're super scared or something like that, you're in a very high state of arousal, uh, then the response to opioids is not going to be, you know, the, in this case, the opioids might actually be a beneficial thing in order to restabilize a network that's overexcited and already sort of becoming erratic and closer, closer to that seizure threshold. And so it becomes very important, though, 
then that we understand the fact that, uh, like we said, even in genetically identical littermate animals, where that brainstem is in the spectrum of excitability uh, is just seemingly it's different across all individuals. So we can't just necessarily assume that state of the brainstem is going to be the same for everyone. So how do we actually, uh, you know, how do we test the state of the respiratory network prior to the administration of opioids? That's still the ongoing question, right? We, we've figured out the, the basic principle or the property of this neural network, how it responds to these stimuli. And some of the work that we're doing right now um, is, is trying to figure out in the in vivo model or in the whole animal system together, rather than the isolated brainstem system, how do we determine the state of the brainstem network prior to the administration of opioids so we can predict you know, whether or not that this brain is going to have a, a fatal response to the opioids or if this brain, you know, a different brain is going to have a non-fatal response or an actually beneficial effect uh, of the opioids. I guess that's that's sort of the ongoing question, you know. Um, in, in sort of, you know, as a follow-up to some of the, um, basic properties of the neurons within, within the brainstem, we were, you know, the last part of the study was, was looking at, you know, how, how do we use what we know about the activity patterns of these neurons within the brainstem to, figure out which drugs can create a brainstem state that are less sensitive to the opioids. And so, so basically like, you know, we, we used a multi-electrode array recording system, um, to track the, you know, the ton- like I was talking about before the silent the tonic and the bursting neurons, um, within the brainstem over the course of those changes in the excitability state. And basically, uh, as the network starts to become active, you have sort of just this mix of bursting cells and that are silent and bursting cells and silent cells. There's not a whole lot of cells that are just tonically spiking. And then as the network starts to become overexcited, the network starts to become overwhelmed or taken over by this, this state of just tonic spiking. And so, uh, you know, that's sort of a metric that we're using. Um, and especially, you know, this one could be, could be useful to say that, Hey, look you know, a brainstem network that's primarily, uh, riddled with this tonic spiking might be at a state that is resilient to the effects of opioids because that tonic spiking might uh, increase the amount of excitability and make the breathing kind of erratic and, and bringing in the opioids, um, can sort of silence some of that tonic spiking down and bring the network back into a more bursting type of, uh, dominated rhythm. You know, that's, that's sort of, the hypothesis or that's some of the stuff that we were showing with the multi-electrode array recordings. And, and we, you know, we also had the idea that if you increase the, you know, if you take that premise and just say, well, you know, instead of modulating the tonic neurons, what if, what if we can actually just modulate the bursting neurons? And we say that, you know, as long as the neurons within the, the, the brainstem are sending those bursts, which go on again to recruit the diaphragm, then maybe it doesn't matter how much tonic spiking is going on within the network. And so we use different um, burst-promoting, burst-current-promoting drugs. So we use a drug called veratridine, which is just a, um, it holds sodium channels open and um, it promotes bursting within the network or promotes, I guess, uh, it, it prevents the bursting currents from shutting off as much, I guess you could say. 
it's not exactly a perfect drug, but, but anyways, uh, what we were finding is that when you actually do that, you can reverse the opioid induced respiratory depression. Um, and you can prevent the network from, from shutting down with an opioid overdose. You know, the, the other thing, um, that we did was we did that same experiment on the flip side. So we basically, we took a drug called 49-anhydrotrotoxin, which is an NAV 1.6 inhibitor, um, which inhibits some of those bursting currents. And, uh, and when you do that, it has the opposite effect. So basically the, um, the respiratory network becomes super sensitive to the effects of opioids. Then we follow that up with another drug. That's uh, kind of a dirty drug, but it's, it's used to inhibit, um, glutamate release. Um, but the drug is rilazol. It's also used to, um, theoretically inhibit some of those, uh, burst properties within some of the cells. And so it was sort of a follow-up just to, you know, that, that drug has sort of been classically used within the field. So that's, that's what we used. And, um, it showed the, the same effect. So basically that's the, um, that's the, the summary from the paper. Let's see. What was the, the paper's name one more time? Um, dynamic, let me see, dynamic rhythmogenic Network states drive differential opioid responses in the in vitro respiratory network by Burgraf at all in the Journal of Neuroscience. So basically, the uh, the summary was that we the unpredictability of the opioid induced respiratory depression is it's an inherent property of the rhythmogenic network. So the variability of people dying from you know opioids based on the same dose is is, is an inherent property of the brainstem, and the respiratory network itself has an optimal state of stability and the opioids can either drive the network towards or away from this optimal state, which is of course going to make you less or is, you know, you're going to make you more or less sensitive to the opioids and the stability of the, the, the respiratory network depends on the amount of excitatory drive and the intrinsic properties of the network. And, and obviously understanding, um, this and the properties that come along with it will help us to better understand and uh, predict sensitivity to the opioids. So that's that research project. And I guess uh, in some of the other episodes, um, we'll highlight some of the other papers. All right. Have a good week. 